I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. David Suzuki is best known as the host of CBC TV's The Nature of Things. Over the course of his career, he also fronted a few series for CBC Radio. The themes he addresses in his work are timeless and, it has to be said, shockingly prescient today. We're calling our showcase of his radio work Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. In this episode, the very first of his 1999 series for ideas called From Naked Ape to Super Species. Hello, I'm David Suzuki. Human beings have undergone fundamental changes that have transformed us into a new kind of force. Never before in the four billion year history of life on Earth has a single species been able to alter the geological, biological, and physical features of the planet. We have evolved from naked ape to super species. As children, some of the earliest words and pictures we learn are frog and tree, kitty cat and dog, monkey and elephant. We know our world is filled with other creatures, and we learn to love them. But plants and animals are far more than just pets or pretty ornaments. The array of living things in the world is essential for our survival. They make the world work. If you want to appreciate how complex it all is, try to imagine making a closed environment that supplies everything you need to survive. Try to imagine making it from scratch, the way astronauts would in a space colony. Gretchen Daly thinks about these things. She's an ecologist at Stanford University. Imagine that a year from now, a spaceship's going to arrive in your backyard and take you off to the moon. And the big question you have then is, you know, how are you going to plan your trip? You've got a year to do it. You're going to live on the moon forever. What are you going to bring with you? Maybe your thoughts would turn, mine probably would, first to my favorite music or my best friends and family that I'd want to persuade to bring with me, my pets or who knows what, you know, maybe you'd start getting practical and thinking about handyman books and stuff that you'd need up there. But eventually you'd have to turn your mind to the issue of what you're going to eat. You know, what kinds of other organisms besides your pets are you going to bring up there to make a happy life possible on the moon? And we're going to assume for the sake of argument that the moon already has in place some of the conditions, you know, critical to human life, like a reasonable atmosphere and climate and maybe the physical structure of soil. Okay, so then you could start going through all the things maybe that you ate for breakfast and for dinner last night. If you think about it, every bit of our nutrition, the food we eat to stay healthy, comes from living things. 
When you buy cornflakes or frozen pizza, you think it was manufactured by a company. But all the ingredients were once alive. You know, what really goes into cornflakes? You might be horrified to find out, but you, you could start listing the things that you pull off the supermarket shelf, not really thinking about what it is, but list all those species. Then you could think about, well, what medicines have you used in the past year? Most medicines are derived from other organisms, mainly plants, but a lot from microorganisms, some from vertebrates and other things like snakes. Anyway, your list would, especially if you wanted to bring stuff up there to make the landscape look pretty for the kids, and you know, you'd th be thinking about them not wanting to miss out on the butterflies and birds and flowers and so on. So your list would probably be, if, even if you were being pretty selective, it would add up to the hundreds or even possibly thousands of species before you'd even begun to consider what you'd have to bring up there to allow all those things to live with you. That's no Sunday afternoon task. Designing a whole package containing everything we'd need to live on the moon is a pretty big challenge. Let's try something simpler. Let's take one part of the package, soil. What if all you had to worry about was making soil work? Gretchen Daly. Some people looked at what was living under a square meter of earth. So they sort of scooped it up, took it into the lab, and they found just the sorts of things that you could see with the naked eye. They found over 50,000 small earthworms and their relatives. They found 50,000 different types of insects and mites. And then they found 12 million roundworms and their relatives. Okay, and that's just the stuff that you can see. I mean, they were probably blind by the end of doing this, but someone on the team then took a pinch of that soil and looked at the microorganisms in it. And there you find even more. I mean, it's just incredible. They found under the microscope 30,000 protozoa, 50,000 algae, 400,000 fungi, and billions of individual bacteria of unknown numbers of species. Okay, so, so now think about that for a minute. Which of those are you going to bring to the moon with you? You know, how are you going to cart them up there? And I mean, basically what you realize is that if the spaceship did land in your yard, you might say, forget it. <laughs> I'm not into adventures. I'll just stay right here where I am. We love the idea of exploring space because it's an unknown frontier. But Gretchen Daly's moon story makes us realize we don't know that much about how it all works down here, or even who's home. For example, biologists aren't even sure how many species have been scientifically catalogued. And when I say catalogued, all that means is we've given a name to a dead specimen. Biologists have identified somewhere between 1.5 and 1.7 million species so far. But we don't know how many there are out there in total. There are ways to make an educated guess, and that, most biologists now agree, is about 10 million. This means we know perhaps 15 to 20 percent of all the life forms on land, at sea, and in fresh water. And when it comes to bacteria, and other microorganisms, well, we don't have any idea at all.
If there's anybody who knows what we don't know, it's Edward O. Wilson. He's a professor of ecology at Harvard University, and he's written many books, including two Pulitzer Prize winners. E.O. Wilson once told me he calculated that more money is spent in bars in New York City in two weeks than is spent around the world in a whole year surveying plants and animals. No wonder we know so little about them. We've only had a word to describe all this abundance of life since the mid-1980s. The word is biodiversity. Biodiversity is the short word for biological diversity. And actually it means something everyone is familiar with. It means the creation, literally. It means the diversity of all forms of life on Earth. And that includes the variety of natural ecosystems from the open ocean to marsh to rainforest. It means the variety of plants and animals and microorganisms, the species that make up those ecosystems. And finally, it means the variety in the genes that prescribe the characteristics of those organisms. And beyond that, it is a precious bequest that nature has given to us. Those species, millions of species that are out there, are on the average, depending on the group of organisms, whether, say, trees or butterflies, a half million to 10 million years old. And they've taken that time to become exquisitely well adapted to the environment, fitting together to create these ecosystems on which our very existence depends. The concept of biodiversity doesn't just mean all the different creatures that live on this planet. It includes the work they do together to create the life cycles on which we all depend. They make air, water, and soil, and cleanse all our wastes. For example, green plants turn sunlight into energy, which they provide to the rest of us when we eat them. Microorganisms in the soil filter our water. Biologists term these processes ecosystem services. We can't live without the rest of life. But that feeling isn't entirely mutual. E.O. Wilson. To get perspective on the interdependence of different life forms on Earth, I like to use this example. If all humanity disappeared, then, how can I put it without sounding callous, the rest of life would benefit enormously. The forests would grow back. The whole earth would green up again. The oceans would teem and so on. Of course, there would be no truly intelligent creature around to enjoy it. If, on the other hand, let's take an example of uh, one of the most abundant animals on the land, in addition to humanity. Take the ants. If the ants were all to disappear, the results would be close to catastrophic because the ants turn a very large part of our soil. They uh, turn as much soil as earthworms in the north temperate zone, and they turn much more of the soil than earthworms and most other creatures in the tropics. They are the major predators of, of other insects and keep the cycle going that way. They are the chief scavengers of small animals, removing over 90% of small dead creatures, and so on and on. If they were all disappear, 
uh, there would be major extinctions of other species and probably even partial collapse of some ecosystems. So uh, biodiversity would suffer. We have always lived on a planet bursting with an almost incalculable number of life forms. For most of human existence, it seemed impossible that we could ever have any effect on such things as the skies, the mountains, and the seas. Our wealth was not only incalculable, it kept renewing itself. But now we can poison the skies, level mountains, and fish the seas bare. In this century, human beings have exploded in numbers, consumption, and technological muscle power. And this has put enormous pressure on other species, driving many of them out of existence. But the fact is, 99% of all of the species that have ever existed went extinct before we humans even got here. So extinction is natural. Why worry? E.O. Wilson. The idea that extinction is natural, that evolution will replace the species that are lost, and so has it ever been since the beginning of life. Humanity is just the latest agent of extinction. We're, if we're really part of nature, we ought to accept that. This is uh, what I call one of the great forms of denial about the environment. It overlooks the fact that those 99% of the species that became extinct are spread out over 3 billion years. You know, there's this turnover. The average life of a species, and this is what should matter to humanity, is on the order of a million years. And we are drastically shortening that lifetime for species. And since it takes a long time, thousands to millions of years, to create as fully developed a species as the ones around us, then we are doing the equivalent of drawing down hard on our bank account. We are uh, destroying species at a far faster rate. We estimate somewhere between a hundred times and a thousand times faster than species could be created, even if we left the natural environment alone. And you know, you can't be drawing down, say conservatively, on your bank account at a hundred times the rate you're putting new money in without growing broke very fast. Our biological bank account is based on energy from the sun. Plants capture sunlight and convert it into sugars which are used for energy by all the rest of life up and down the food chain. Every living thing needs energy to perpetuate itself. The ability of all species to reproduce and grow is our biological capital. Growth and reproduction beyond what's needed to keep a species going is our biological interest. We can use our interest, catching fish or cutting down trees, without endangering a species. But we run into trouble when we start dipping into our capital. Stuart Pym is an eminent conservation biologist from the University of Tennessee. He's one of the scientists who's been paying attention to our biological spending habits. And let me give you a brief tour of what we're doing to the planet. If you take away the frozen bits of the planet, um, the area of the planet is about 130 million square kilometers. Of that, we take up about 15 million square kilometers for our agriculture. And almost all of that agriculture is cut into areas that were once forest. 
We have to also add into the calculation the amount of woodlands that we consume for fuel, which is a very large fraction. We also log large portions of the planet. We also graze parts of the planet, about something like 60 million square kilometers of the planet. About half of the non-frozen area is pasture land of one kind or another. If you begin to think of the scale of that, 15 million square kilometers for, for agriculture, 60 million for, for grazing of one kind or another, um, the amount of forests we use. So the answer is about half. About half of the biological interest of the planet we are already consuming. That's sort of the bad news because we know from the projections of human population growth that our human population is likely to double. And if you think what you see now in terms of the loss of biodiversity is bad, imagine what it will be like in 30, 40 years' time when the world's population has doubled. But in fact, there's bad news and there's worse news. We humanity have highlighted the planet. We have taken the best bits. The forests of Europe, Japan, um, of, of North America are the bits that are just right. Not too hot, not too cold, not too wet, not too dry. What we are doing now is having taken the best bits of the planet, as our population expands, it is moving into the areas that are not so good. We're moving into the areas of the planet that are basically indigestible. The parts of the planet that are not so good for us are the richest in terms of biodiversity, tropical and boreal forests, coral reefs, and wetlands. As we begin to invade them, we're putting tremendous pressure on millions of species. We're accelerating the rate of extinction. Stuart Pym. 11% of all birds are on the verge of extinction as a consequence of what we've done now. A report published in the last couple of weeks for the world's plants, suggests that 12% of the world's plants are on the brink of extinction. And I suspect that's an underestimate because there are many plants that we don't know and what we don't know are likely to be rare and they're likely to be even more vulnerable. It's not just on land, it's in the oceans, it's in our rivers. A greater fraction of, of our freshwater fish, and a huge fraction of, of freshwater clams and mussels are on the verge of extinction. The pattern is ubiquitous. Whenever we have sufficient data, we recognize that something between 10 and 40% of the world species are already on the verge of extinction. There have been major episodes of extinction in the past. The fossil record tells us that five times so far, huge numbers of species suddenly disappeared. And some people think we're in the middle of a sixth. In each case in the past, new species evolved and made up for the ones that disappeared. The last big extinction spasm eliminated the dinosaurs, and that made way for the mammals and us. So what's the concern? E.O. Wilson. I think most people are now aware that about 65 million years ago, what is now Yucatan got smacked 
by a 10-mile-wide uh, comet or meteor that um, created tremendous seismic shocks all around the world and, as one geologist put it, rang the world like a bell, causing giant tsunamis and, and massive extinctions, including probably the last of the dinosaurs. We are now in the beginnings, I think most experts on biodiversity agree, of uh, similar extinction episodes, except now we are the, the comet, and we could end up having this, a similar result as what happened 65 million years ago, ending the age of dinosaurs. And I like to say that um, what we will have is the Eremozoic age. Uh, Remozoic means, that's what word I coined, that means the age of loneliness. That is, we will be in an impoverished world of our own making. Evolution will replace that. But after each great extinction episode, like the one that happened 65 million years ago, each of those extinction episodes required about 10 million years to fully replace that which was lost very abruptly. And if we uh, go on uh, wiping out a large part of the fauna and flora of the world, and our descendants, you know, as, as early as 2050, realize that because of our recklessness, they're going to have to wait 10 million years to see a return of the world's biota and fauna and flora, they are going to be, how can I put it, peeved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. This is a special series about human culture and its impact on the natural world. It's called From Naked Ape to Super Species. We are air-breathing landlubbers who live above ground, and that's how we view the world. But in fact... Most of life on this planet is underwater or under our feet. Ecologists have long assumed that the capture of energy from sunlight, photosynthesis, is the driving force of ecosystems. But now, biologists have found that the process of decay, the breakdown of organic material, is the real regulator of ecosystems. That work is done by insects, worms, fungi, and microorganisms. Ori Lauchs is an ecologist at Miami University in southern Ohio. He's one of a vanishing breed. He doesn't just sit in the lab in front of a computer. He's actually out there mucking around in the dirt. He's studying the effects of pollution on forests along the Ohio River. He's been comparing two plots of land, one in southern Illinois where pollution is low and another in Ohio where pollution is high. In those soils in southern Illinois, we have 30 earthworms per square meter. That's rich. You know, you can get all the bait you need to go fishing in 15 minutes. On the same soil, these soils were matched very identically, and they had the same kind of forest, white oak, black oak, and hickory on it. The same soils in southern Ohio have one earthworm per square meter, and it's a species that lives in dead wood. All of the earthworms that live in the soil are gone. This is an earth-shattering finding, because it's not just worms, it's all the other things in the soil as well. 
almost half the biodiversity is gone from soils that are the richest on the North American continent. And you can see the effects. The trees are dying. Ori Lauks. The death and decline in growth that we observe in that forest is attributable to the failure of function in the ecosystem, and that failure, we believe, is due to the loss of biological diversity. We've lost half of the numbers of individuals, and we've lost half of the species. And so we have to ask the question, at what point in species impoverishment did ecosystem function become so impaired that we destroyed the capacity of the trees to grow or to process litter. In other words, every aspect of that system, you know, beginning from the soils and then spreading to the functioning of the larger species and to the birds that feed in the litter layer, every aspect is now dysfunctional. And does that dysfunction start at 20% of loss of biodiversity or 10%? The only honest answer is, we don't know. We have no idea how much biodiversity can be lost before an ecosystem collapses. Human observation tends to be directed at events that are big and dramatic. And so changes that take place among little organisms over long periods have been just generally discounted. And it's, it's only a relatively small audience out there that are able to say, earthworms are king. You know, this, this is where the action is. We already know we're exterminating elephants and rhinos and whales and other big species at catastrophic rates. But this story about the earthworms in the forests of Ohio is far more chilling. Death, or rather decay, is taking a holiday. And simply put, if we don't have death and decay, we won't have birth and life. You're listening to Ideas, and to the fourth of our special summer series, we're calling Suzuki's Survival Guide, a Retrospective. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 1999, David Suzuki presented a series here on ideas called From Naked Ape to Super Species. Here's the rest of that inaugural episode. In September of 1991, eight people were sealed into a giant bubble in the middle of the Arizona desert. 
It was called Biosphere 2, and it was meant to recreate the Earth's natural systems. It housed different ecosystems like desert, ocean, grasslands, and tropical forest. 3,800 different plant and animal species were collected and set up inside. It was an attempt to create an airtight, self-sustaining system that would eventually make long voyages in space possible. It was a miniature version of Biosphere 1, the Earth, and it was supposed to provide the clean air, water, and food needed to support the bionauts over two years. It was, you might say, the arc of technology. As an ecologist, Gretchen Daly had a keen interest in how it all turned out. $200 million went into creating a tiny little self-contained ecosystem in which eight people were hoping to live for a period of two years. So this little area, it's down in Arizona, is, um, it's, you know, about maybe three or four acres in area, and it's got a little ocean, it's got croplands, it's got rivers, it's got all kinds of stuff in there that would, in theory, help purify waste and all that stuff, perform all these services. And yet the people that went into this found that even with heroic efforts, um, they couldn't keep it going. Rapidly, the oxygen levels plummeted because of activities of some of the soil organisms I told you about. And um, so the oxygen level went down to what you'd find at over 17,000 feet in elevation, so they're nearly <laughs> going hypoxic in there. Then um, nitrous oxide levels skyrocketed to a level at which function of the brain can be impaired or actually severely damaged. All kinds of things happened. All of the pollinators went extinct, and many of the species they had put in there went extinct, thereby dooming most of the plant species to eventual extinction. The water had to be purified by hand because none of the natural purification systems that they thought they had designed in there were working. And all sorts of other things happened. Cockroaches and katydids and these crazy ants lost their minds and took over. Vines grew out of control. So people had to spend a huge amount of time just cutting back and trying to control the organisms that took advantage of this situation and the lack of natural controls on their activities. So what that shows you is, you know, we, most of these services are so complex. They operate on such large scales and they're so little explored that we can hope to replace them with technology. In a way, this was a successful experiment because it proved we don't have any idea how to create an environment that supports us like the one we already get for free. As we tear at that fabric of life, we like to think that human ingenuity will always make up for our destructiveness. So far, we're not even close. Gretchen Daly. It is humbling. I mean, it makes you laugh. <laughs> it, it shows, I don't know, some of the good sides of humanity. You could say our curiosity, our determination. In, in many ways, those are, we would think of them as noble qualities. I mean, they're interesting things. But at the same time, we're like little kids. You know, we just, we've, we've amassed this power and we've deceived ourselves somewhat. I mean, in modern urban societies today and in the most, basically the richest and most powerful parts of the world, people are so removed from these ecosystem services that, that they've basically all but faded from view.
Biosphere 2 tells a story that's humbling. It ought to make us reassess a great deal of what we do. But in the last 200 years, science and technology have worked wonders. People used to die far younger. We lost about half our children. And think of all the things we have now. Television, cars, computers, and satellites. It does seem like science and technology can do anything. Why can't it save biodiversity as well? E.O. Wilson. Many people uh, cling to the forlorn hope that science can rescue biodiversity even if humanity continues to wipe out the natural environment. The notion being that, well, go ahead and clear-cut the last of the forest for that little extra bit of, of agricultural land. You know, Go ahead and dam that river, uh, even if it's going to wipe out all of the crustacean and most of the fish species above the dam and so on. Let science take care of that. I mean, after all, and worse comes to worse. We keep on doing what we're doing, worse comes to worse. The scientists can go out there and they can rescue the species and put them in zoos and, and gardens and, and they can freeze them in, uh, in, in liquid nitrogen and reconstitute, you know, like reconstituting eggs from uh, a powder uh, later on. And uh, let me tell you what the truth is. The truth is that science hasn't got a clue. Uh, science can't take care that way of more than a minute fraction. Consider that uh, there are 40,000, 50,000 land vertebrates, for example, mammals and reptiles and amphibians and so on. And all the zoos of the world can only take care, if, even if all their forces were mobilized to take care of endangered species, only something like 4,000 species on a solid and continuing basis. And those uh, zoos have no facilities whatsoever for looking after the millions of insect species, crustaceans, numerous other invertebrates that are vital to the life of ecosystems. Where are they going to go? No one has even thought about saving them in that manner. And it gets at least as bad in the botanical gardens because they are ill-equipped to look after the 250,000 species of wild plants out there, a large fraction of which are threatened or soon will be. Uh, and, and what about all those microorganisms that make up the soil and are vital for the sustaining of the base of the whole ecosystem? We don't even know what those microorganisms are, more than 99% of them. Now, people go on and say, uh, well, okay, suppose they, they do become extinct and we can't uh, rescue them. We can surely someday, uh, if we have their DNA, reconstitute them and make the species again. Forget it. Uh, it, it may be possible with some living species to uh, someday, with their DNA, bring an organism back to life. Maybe. But only a minute fraction could be done that way. And even, let me make it even grimmer, uh, even if we could do it, which we can't, but even if we could bring all the species back to life, we don't know enough about the ecosystems to know how to put the ecosystems back together. You know, what combinations of species in what order and so on. It would be like unscrambling an egg blindfolded with a spoon. We think we can eliminate those natural ecosystems and uh, substitute prosthetic devices to keep the planet in that delicately balanced, highly peculiar state 
on which humanity depends in its physiology for its life, then we are kidding ourselves. An ecosystem, in other words, the system that gives us all those services, all that stability, that security, the cushion for free, free, it's there, it doesn't cost us anything, is a system of complexity far beyond the capacity of supercomputers with the best scientific minds in the world to even get down correctly and abstract, much less create from scratch. So for a few centuries, ladies and gentlemen, the wise thing for humanity to do is to settle down before it wrecks the planet and uh, to save as much of our natural ecosystems and species as we can to carry th us through the, uh, the tough times coming in the 21st century. About three centuries ago, Newton and Descartes pictured the universe as a giant machine, a clockwork mechanism. Ever since then, scientists have concentrated on identifying and separating the different parts of whatever phenomenon they were studying. That means analyzing complex systems by reducing them to their most simple components, like taking a clock apart to see how it works. This approach is called reductionism. Now, however, there's a new breed of scientist who looks for systems and patterns that are usually missed when things are broken down. For example, physicists have found that when subatomic particles are combined, new properties emerge that can't be predicted from what's known about the individual particles. The whole is more than the sum of its parts. For most of human history, people understood that everything around them, from trees and animals to clouds in the sun, was somehow interconnected. They searched for patterns to explain the mysteries of the world. Modern reductionism pushed aside these old ideas, but now they're coming back. Brian Swim is a mathematician and cosmologist. He believes that science is converging with ancient tradition. I think that the really thrilling opening for our culture, our planetary culture, is that the deepest discoveries of science have an amazing corroboration with the ancient spiritual insights of our wisdom traditions. Say, take the Buddhist world and the notion of emptiness. The emptiness is something that is, is full. It's a realm that generates all that is. Well, for 400 years of science, this made utterly no sense whatsoever. But now, with, in quantum physics, we realize that elementary particles emerge out of the vacuum. And then we actually measured it. And we, we now know, as an absolute scientific fact, that the basis of reality is emptiness. Now, we say vacuum, or we'll say the quantum vacuum, or zero-point energy. All of these are simply words that scientists have used to point to a very mysterious reality. It's a reality that doesn't consist of things. It is actually a reality that consists of, of power to give birth to everything. So our actual understanding now of the universe from its physical dimension 
corresponds very deeply with uh, these ancient understandings in Buddhism and Hinduism concerned with um, emptiness. The most viable scientific hypothesis of the birth of the universe is that the universe emerges out of the vacuum. And this sounds very similar to a traditional understanding of Atman, Shunyata, or in the Christian tradition it would be the Godhead, or sometimes theologians would talk about the super-essential darkness of God. Well, these are that's another way of referring to a realm that scientists are pointing to with the word quantum vacuum, or just vacuum. One of the most remarkable new theories to come out of recent scientific discoveries is that the Earth regulates its own systems. The atmosphere, the land, the oceans, and all the living things on Earth somehow interact to keep conditions stable over long periods of time. Brian Swim. One easy way of capturing this is, is simply to say the Earth is alive. Of course, the Earth is not alive the way a salamander is. It doesn't give birth to baby Earths. So the word live here is used in an analogous way. It's alive in the sense that it actually organizes itself so the complexity of its life forms might continue. One easy way of seeing this is that the life forms require a particular spectrum of temperature for the molecules to operate. And um, the Earth maintains itself in that range that enables life to come forth. And the reason we know that Earth is actually maintaining itself is that the output of the sun has changed drastically over billions of years. It, it was 25% uh, less uh, intense in the beginnings of life. And so life had to alter the clouds and, and so forth to trap the heat to keep the Earth at a particular temperature. I mean, it's, it's another stunning realization because you can't perceive the Earth as self-regulating in our own local frame of reference. It took uh, all of this data brought together and suddenly we captured a sense of the whole. Now, intuitively, this was something understood by indigenous peoples for uh, 10,000 years, 50,000 years, maybe. And without question, indigenous peoples knew the Earth, they thought of the Earth as Mother Earth and alive. I'm simply saying that 400 years of science has enabled us to begin to approach this uh, more intuitive truth from an outer or empirical way. So that taken together with indigenous knowledge, Again, we have the opportunity for, for a stronger understanding of the self-regulatory or living nature of Earth. And so we begin to see ourselves not as just individuals on the planet Earth, but rather as uh, sentient creatures that are within the actual organized life of Earth. We're a part within the whole. And, and this perspective is, I think, very different from what we've been used to, at least in modern industrial culture. Brian Swim thinks the discoveries of quantum physics may finally give our wandering tribes a mythos to help us join back up with each other and with all the other creatures who share the planet with us. Where science helps here a little bit is that we now see that we are actually kin to every species. 
by looking at the molecules, by looking at the forms of metabolism, by looking at the genetics, we start to see that we share in with every species. I mean, this recent discovery of a bacteria that deals with oxygen, it breathes in a certain sense oxygen. And so its way of dealing with the oxygen is with a molecule, a hemoglobin-like molecule. And so physicists examined the structure of this hemoglobin molecule. And then they looked at the hemoglobin molecule of a whale. Both of these capture oxygen. And when you put these two together on the computer screen, they're almost identical. And the reason they're almost identical is that they both have a common ancestor around three billion years ago. So that it's not that we're imposing a relationship when, upon the world and we say, well, we have to develop a bond with all creatures. It's that we are discovering, actually, at the level of consciousness, what's actually there in the, the very structure of the beings. The whale and the bacteria are cousins. And we're all cousins. And so I would say that the interrelatedness is there. So it's not a question of straining to feel concern for the creatures. It's rather um, the question of how do we activate an awareness of the deep bond that already exists. That's the challenge. Most of us take as an article of faith that science provides us with a precise picture of reality. But at the cutting edge of human thought in modern physics, we don't find absolute certainty. We find uncertainty and relativity. Depending on how we look at light, it may be a particle or a wave. Matter appears from and disappears into nothingness. Time expands or shrinks. Speed depends on where you are when measuring it. It's a bizarre cosmos. It would be the height of arrogance to believe science has made most of the important discoveries about how the world really works. Science has only been in existence for a couple of centuries. But for hundreds and thousands of years, our predecessors, indistinguishable from us physically or intellectually, were wondering about the cosmic unknown, the vast forces impinging on their lives. There were countless Einsteins and Curies among them, and their dreams and insights were handed down through their oral traditions all over the globe. Indigenous knowledge has been tested by the most critical condition of all, survival. It had to work, or those early theorists wouldn't have left anyone to pass it on. Seen in this way, we in the industrialized urban societies have much to gain from other perspectives. Jeanette Armstrong is from the Okanagan Nation in the interior of British Columbia. She directs Anaukan, a native-run educational center, and she's obviously thought a lot about her people's understanding of who we are and how we fit into the planet. Physically, we are the land, we are the air, and we are the things that surround us. The uh, eating of the foods of the land, the beings that give their lives of this great compassion and this great love for life in every way, gave their bodies to us and gave their lives to us for our continuance as we give our lives back you know, to the land for its continuance. So one of the things that we as Okanagan people know is that 
our very flesh is our land. Our very breath that we take is our land. Everything that is about us is our land. And in seeing that and in knowing that, we understand that we have the same natural ability as the land to be whatever the land is. And so when we call on our spirits in, in the spirit world, that's how we talk to them, is that the most foundational word when we refer to everything is we only have one word, meaning everything, the land, the water, the birds, the insects, everything, including ourselves, we, we say tmih, and that means everything, including us, has that life force in it. We're the same as everything else, only our form changes because everything has to reveal itself in a different form so that this wonderful creation can, can be. Most of us live in the human-created and human-dominated environment of cities. Nature is something out there. Nature is a resource filled with commodities for us to exploit. As in the rest of the world, the ancient Okanagan landscape is being dismantled. Our old-growth forests are melting like snow. The creatures embedded in them, like the grizzlies, salmon, birds, and snakes, are vanishing too. Jeanette Armstrong's life has spanned the traditional world of her people and industrial society. I can go back to my memories with my grandmother and my grandfather and my different aunts and my brothers and sisters. Um, I remember going out on the land with them. And uh, going out uh, onto the land was, it was like being with members of the family in a way, and I never understood that until later when I started looking at what that meant. Um, when my grandmother would say, grandmother, you know, and name the lake, or, or grandfather and name the mountain, or these grandfather trees, and talk to the, um, the wildlife that way, um, I never used to see the differentiation between um, human beings and um, the life forms around us. And um, when, when those um, grandmothers or grandfather mountains or, or lakes or rivers or, or streams are destroyed, it's like your grandparents being, um, being hurt, you know. For our people, um, no different than a family member leaving. And it's that connection at that level, and it's more than just an emotional regard for the land or emotional um, maybe love of the land because of its pictorial quality or its, its beauty. It's, it's an actual relationship with, with our land in that way. And that relationship is, is generations long. It's not just an individual. And... Uh, I can't um, see how life could be without that, you know, and that, as I see, is the most fundamental different perspective. In that kind of uh, principle, in that kind of attitude, you can't go out and destroy that land. You, you, no more than you, you know, unless you were insane, no more than you could destroy your grandparents, you know.
I come from a very different world than Jeanette Armstrong. I'm a scientist by training, and as a scientist, I've also come to realize that we are inextricably bound up in the web of living things. We all share our DNA. We are all genetic relatives, created by the air, water, soil, and sunlight around us. When we look at the world this way, the environment is no longer something out there. It literally is inseparable from us. It is us. This episode originally broadcast on ideas back in 1999. It was produced by Jane Lewis and Bernie Lucht, with research and assistance from Holly Dressel, studio technician Dave Field. In the next episode of Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective, you'll hear about the constraints of seeing the world exclusively through an economic lens. I've always felt that economics seems to pay no attention to the real world of nature. Nature does all kinds of things, like give us wood, medicines, and food, to say nothing of clean air, water, and energy. Hazel Henderson says there's another important part of our lives that isn't counted in the economic equation. She calls it the love economy. That's all the productive work that humans do that has no money value attached to it, like raising families and community work. To illustrate her ideas, Hazel Henderson likes to imagine the economy as a three-layer cake with icing. Well, you know, I was trying to describe, summing up in one drawing, what, what I was trying to do to reframe economics and bring in what I call the love economy, you know, the 50% of all of the production and consumption and uh, useful work, which is outside of the money economy, which therefore economists ignore. And of course, uh, nature's productivity, which they also ignore. And I can remember drawing this three-layer cake with icing on the top, and showing it to my daughter, who was then about 10, you see, and I said, hey, Ali, do you understand what mother's trying to do here? You know, this is what I'm trying to say. And the economists only think about, you know, what they call the private sector, you know, which is the icing on the cake, and the public sector, which is, you know, the, the next layer down. But they forget these two other layers at the bottom, you know, the love economy and nature, which are holding the whole thing up. You know, the real uh, community life, which we realize now is the glue that holds everything together, you know, this um, sharing and altruism and, um, you know, and, and nature's productivity. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool, Mom. Yeah, I understand what that is. <laughs> Special thanks to Kate Zeman and Melody Muayadi of CBC Radio Archives. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.